Hey there, listener. If you like what you hear on World Changing Women, you should join us at the Conscious Company Leaders Forum, where we bring together tons of stories like this live, in person, outside of Santa Cruz, California at 1440 Multiversity. Go to ConsciousCompanyLeadersForum.com for more information. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. So no matter what they tell you about where you don't belong or what you're not suited for or what you weren't born to, there's an exception every minute of every day. And I was always looking for those exceptions. In celebration of International Women's Day, we're gonna to talk to a true female pioneer. Ruth Ann Harnish has spent her life breaking through barriers and redefining what's possible as a woman. Despite daily harassment, Ruth Ann became one of the first women to anchor the evening news and earned recognition during her time as an award-winning journalist. After her media career, she became a philanthropist, investor, activist, and coach with her life centered on giving. Through the Harnish Foundation, Ruth Ann has invested millions of dollars in hundreds of projects that empower girls and women, the poor, and others at a disadvantage. So, world-changing women listeners, if you're currently facing an obstacle, keep listening to soak in some of Ruth Ann's incredible wisdom and be inspired to dream big. Back at the beginning, you spent so much time in the media world, and that was everything from radio to print to broadcast. What inspired you to get into the media world when you did? I was a child of the 1950s. Not every television, not every home in the block had television. So when we had TV and television wasn't on 24-7 as it is now, it was only on a few hours a day. So it was really special when television was broadcasting. And when radio moved to transistors. Those of us who grew up with um, music in our ears, wireless headphones, can't imagine there was a time when your radio had to be plugged into a wall. You could not carry your music with you anywhere. And when inexpensive, portable transistor radios, they were, gosh, so big. <laughs> now when I think of, they're the size of uh, maybe, five iPads stacked together. It was the smallest radio that you could get to carry around. But that was magic to me, that you could take the voices and the music and the news with you wherever you went. And I would hide it under my pillow at night and listen as long as I could. And I fell in love with the idea of voices and pictures flying through the air. I also was an early reader. And, oh, this sounds like ancient history too. Most big cities had several daily newspapers. 
And I like to read our morning newspaper and afternoon newspaper in Buffalo, New York. I loved those. Every day you could find out the most amazing things that happened all over the world. Again, in this ancient time, there was no internet. You had no way of knowing what was happening elsewhere in an instant. It was impossible. You waited till the newspaper came to tell you on a daily basis what was happening. So when people would ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? At that time, little girls were expected to want to be wives and mothers. That was really the most socially acceptable answer. But somewhere in my head, I, I really wished that I could do something with the magic of pictures and words flying through the air or being printed and delivered to somebody's house. So I dreamed about doing that from back at the beginning. Did you ever talk to anyone about wanting to do that? I must have because my mother nagged me. And my first paying job was at a newspaper in Buffalo, New York. It wasn't writing or doing any real newspaper work. It was creating the bills for the boys who delivered the newspaper. Girls were not allowed to deliver the newspaper. That's why they were called paper boys. And yet I was able to do the office work that presented them their bills at the end of the week that they had to pay for the papers that they were getting. So first job at a newspaper. And the second thing that I did, I still in high school at this time, I was a teen DJ at what was then WYSL FM in Buffalo, New York. And my mother had heard that they were looking for high school correspondents because I listened to this rock and roll radio station and she heard it and she said, why don't you apply for this? Nah. And she nagged until I did because I must have mentioned I had similar ambitions. I don't know if I've ever told this story. My best friend and I were spending the night at her sister's apartment. Her sister was out. We had gotten into her sister's adult beverages. <laughs> the phone rang. It was my mother saying, they called from the radio station. They want to do an interview with you right now. <laughs> I could not tell her the truth <laughs> that I would probably not be at my best. <laughs> and she sent that phone call over to the sister's apartment where I did my interview <laughs> and I aced that sucker. Of course you did. <laughs> uh, and I became a high school correspondent and would record the news of the day if, at South Park High School. Yes, there is a South Park High School and I went to it. <laughs> and so I was the teen correspondent for South Park High School, and then they started hiring young people to spin rock and roll. 
because the government said you could not play the same thing on your AM and FM radio station. At the time, if you owned both, you could simulcast. And the government said, that's not a good use of the airwaves we're letting you use. You have to give your community separate programming. Gordon McClendon, owner of many radio stations, said, I don't want to pay anybody else. So he got a bunch of kids and I was one of them. <laughs> so one thing that strikes me when you're talking about this is that it seems like your mom supported these ambitions. Is that an accurate statement? It is an accurate statement. Parental push for academics and external work, that was there. We, we were going to be expected to take care of ourselves and to excel. So yeah, I would say I was parentally prodded. I don't think I ever did a radio show she didn't listen to. <laughs> so you made the journey then from teen DJ to anchoring the, the nightly news. How did, how did that happen? I'm so fascinated by this story. That's a long leap from when I was an unpaid, essentially volunteer, but a, a disc jockey on rock and roll radio. As I said at the time, women were not being offered many opportunities to be on the air. I got, my next job was as a secretary. And the job after that was as a secretary. And it was a challenge to ask for anything more than administrative work. I, at WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia, became a volunteer producer of television programming in addition to my secretarial work. They didn't want to pay me to do anything else, but I wanted to do more things. When I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, I got work for the first time on air as a consumer reporter, producing my own stories on how to save money or how to be a good consumer. I was 23 years old. How did you do that? Uh, auditioned, and again, this is where the government had something to do with it. The government required television stations who had a license to use the public airwaves. The airwaves belonged to the American people, they said. And in order for you to use those airwaves, you have to serve your community. And they had to prove they were serving the community by reflecting the population on air. Prior to affirmative action and this kind of requirement from the federal government, only white men were the newscasters, the sportscasters, the weather guys, the talk show hosts, the game show hosts, only white men. They were required to expand and they had to hire people of color, usually only one to prove, look, we have one. And they had to hire women, usually only one, look, we have one. <laughs> and I was, I was their one <laughs> at w what was then WLAC-TV in Nashville. It's now WTVF-TV. And the person who came after me, who was what they used to call in the industry at the time, the two birds with one stone, a person of color who is also female, 
Her name was Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> <laughs> I might have heard of her. <laughs> she did well. Yeah, she did all right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And she was a young woman also. That was her first television job. And we got those jobs because the government said it's not fair. And I would say that if there's anything that has been a hallmark of my work after I left journalism and became a philanthropist, and I happened to do that because I interviewed a man who I later married, whose business was in money management and his generosity to me made me personally wealthy and gave me the opportunity to start the Harnish Foundation. Mm -hmm. And if there's a hallmark of the work we've done for the last 20 years, it's, this isn't fair. What can we do about it? Mm -hmm. Because my whole life has been looking at life from an angle of, hey, <laughs> this isn't fair. When I was a young person, our family took a car trip and we got as far south as where there were separate restrooms for colored people. It said colored on the door and white. There were separate restaurants. There were separate motels. I lived in Buffalo, New York. I never saw anything like that. But when I saw that in my own country, that's not fair. And the civil rights revolution of our our time of my teenage years and and is still going on right now is something that has been deep in my heart it's not fair and the longer i live and my work as a reporter kept showing me so many more ways it's not fair it's not fair Every system, if you think about it, and Rebecca Traster has just written about this in detail in her new book, Good and Mad, every system we know, especially in the U.S., depends on the unpaid or exploited or underpaid labor of people who aren't white men. <laughs> if women hadn't been doing free work, keeping so much going, including, I mean, I gave you some of the examples in the work world that I did for free because people didn't want to pay. People who weren't on their list of people who deserve to be paid and be paid fairly for their work. So that's a hallmark of the kind of work that I've been doing for 20 years is where is it not fair and how can we make it fairer for those people? When I was a reporter, I learned about the People First movement and realized, Goodness, we are completely barbaric to people with any kind of disability. Reporters like me were sent out to do what people with disability call inspiration porn. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this person overcoming obstacles. Aren't they courageous and heroic? And I've learned they're just living their lives the best they can and we make it so difficult. The, the rest of the abled world makes it so difficult. Mm. Anyway, there are so many ways we're not fair to so many people. And as we discover these, we find ways to try and make it fairer. So one thing that just struck me from all of that was two, thing, two times that I heard, one, that you volunteered to produce your own work, and then second, that you auditioned 
when there was an opportunity, yes, opened up by the government, mm-hmm. but you went in and you went for it. Um, and against kind of all this interesting paradigm that you were up against at the time where women didn't do certain things, what gave you the courage to be constantly raising your hand and auditioning and continuing to try for these roles that were brand new? I mean, pioneering roles, one of the first women on the airwaves. How did you do that? I was thinking about that the other day and wondering at, in some position, I was, how did I get here? And I think part of the answer is I was told no so often that I stopped hearing no. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. My boundaries are not as good in some areas or have not been in the past as they maybe should have been. Like, if they tell you no for everything, how do you know when there really is a real no? (laughs) If they say you shouldn't, you don't belong there, that's not for you, you can't. How do you know when that's really true? Because there are times when it's really true. And I find myself uh, challenged by by not getting into places that are not appropriate for me or are over my head or are a lane I really don't want to be in simply because I've heard a no and, I, and I'm paying no attention to that now. <laughs> so yeah, I, th- I think when they tell you all the time, girls can't and you say, but I want to, or poor people can't and you say, but I want to, <laughs> and you keep trying. When I was a kid and they first started asking, what do you want to be? The first thing I told them I wanted to be was a queen and because it looked good in all the stories. They t- <laughs> and they say, you can't be a queen. You have, And they explained Queen Elizabeth had just been, was being crowned when I was a little girl. And they explained, you get born into this family and that's how you get, maybe that's why I wanted to be a queen or becoming <laughs> one. That looked like a really good job. Well, Meghan Markle has just proven hmm, maybe you don't have to be born into a special family. Maybe you don't have to look a certain way. So no matter what they tell you about where you don't belong or what you're not suited for or what you weren't born to, there's an exception every minute of every day. And I was always looking for those exceptions. As a child, I was reading the biographies of women who were exceptions, and there were darn few of them on the shelves. But today, they're everywhere. There are so many books filled with stories of women pioneers and women who are making a difference today and who are overcoming the odds and the obstacles. So if you are looking for proof that that you can, that proof is out there. At the same time, if you're one who is willing to hear no and be discouraged, the world is waiting to discourage you. Mm. So you said something before we started recording here about, um, and I won't, I won't nail it verbatim, but essentially kind of only you know the journey that it took for you to get to where you went. Can you talk to me about some of the most painful times on that journey in the media world? Were there any stories that kind of epitomize the struggle for you of being one of the first women in multiple fields? I have a really 
illustrative story from when I was in my early 20s. I might have been as young as 23, 24 when this happened. I was on an assignment at the Tennessee State Prison. It was still very unusual for a woman to be out with a camera crew. The camera crew generally felt denigrated by having to go out with me. Like, you aren't going out with the guy who's got the lead story. You're going out with the girl who's in the second half of the newscast. So it's not a prestige assignment to get stuck going out with me. And one of the things they that some of the photographers did, and one in particular who was on the assignment that day, would imply that it was a good thing to be out on assignment today with me because I was granting special favors to him. That was the implication. There was always a wink that it was a good assignment for him. And it was with this attitude that I was brought into the Tennessee State Prison, one of the most uh, at that time, testosterone-laden and frightening places in the United States of America. And I was there, I think, because they were talking about retiring the electric chair that was known as Old Sparky, oh a God. big wooden chair. And I think that's why I don't, I don't, I'm 68 years old. I don't remember the exact details of my early 20s. But I think that's why I was in the room with the electric chair, and the warden who was showing me around with a person they call a trustee who was had a, a good assignment that wasn't in a cell, he locked me in with the electric chair with this inmate and said, ask him what he's in there for. Well, you knew what he was in there for. And this was so amusing to all the men who were watching, the young girl reporter in there with the convicted rapist, while they're all thinking this is very funny, me trapped in a cell with a rapist. So that's the kind of thing that was my day. <laughs> And when you're in the Me Too era now, and when Taylor Swift went to court about a man who put his hand under her dress in a photo op, that was my day. My day was posed for a photo with somebody reaching around to grab right under my rib cage so that their fingers would be right where they were on, in that photo forever. Or they would have their hand on my backside or under the, or the, remember President George H.W. Bush is known now for goosing women in a photo up and saying, my favorite magician, David Copperfield. This used to be considered funny. This used to be considered normal. And that was my exposure to the public on a daily basis. So these last months, ever since October 5th of 2017, as all these stories have been coming out, I am so glad that the culture is changing. Uh, part of what I've done in the last few years is invest in storytelling 
to change the conversation. I'm an executive producer of the Oscar-nominated documentary, The Hunting Ground, that Lady Gaga got her Oscar nomination for the song, Till It Happens to You. It, it talked about how young women took control of the story of their own rapes on campus and challenged the institutions that would have silenced them. And now, sexual assault on campus is not a dirty secret anymore. It's people taking control of their own stories and finding their own kind of justice when the adults wouldn't do it for them. Mm -hmm. And other documentaries like Audrey and Daisy, sexual assault in high school, photographed, put out on social media, a, a high school girl committing suicide, because this happens. Roll Red Roll, a documentary about rape involving athletes and a town that wants to protect the team more than it wants to help the victim. We're telling these stories and the world is changing. So when I look back on what were some of the biggest challenges in my career, I'd have to say it's living through decades where women's stories were silenced, where women were treated as if they were an inconvenience if you had to hire them, and then you made it convenient for yourself in other ways. I'm glad these times are changing, and I'm glad to have been a part of it. So when I put myself in your shoes, um, just taking the one story that you just told of being locked in a prison cell with a convicted rapist. And, and an electric chair. <laughs> that that might have been enough for me to just be like, screw it. Like, this is not worth it. Whatever this ambition I have is just not worth it to go through day after day of this sort of harassment. How did you keep going despite the fact that you were, like you said, for decades? I feel like you, I feel like saying, oh, you're so young. <laughs> <laughs> because where else were you going to go? My first job in the summer at a television station, I was a teenager, and the general manager called me to his office. And it was to be chased around his desk like, like a cartoon. He, tr he was trying to tackle me onto his sofa. I went to my union steward and complained, and he said, he likes you. <laughs> so. Where, where was any woman going to go to work where she was protected from that kind of thing? This was the best paying work I had ever had and it could have taken me somewhere better. I was not going to not do that work. I was not going to go backward. And beside, you see this now in the response of some people to women who are involved in the Me Too stories, why can't you just suck it up and be quiet? Why can't you just grow up? Why can't you just recognize that this didn't ruin your life? Because that's what we were taught to do. If you let every little thing drop you down, you no woman would have been able to do anything. <laughs> that, that's why I'm so grateful that you can ask a question like, how did you go on, and not know that there was no alternative. Absolutely. There really was no alternative. Absolutely. My, fr 
friend, Rose Palermo, who became an, a, my attorney at one point in life, but who was someone I knew in Nashville, Tennessee, is the woman who in the 1970s went to the Supreme Court to have the right to keep her maiden name. Before Rose Palermo went to the Supreme Court of the United States of America, the law required a married woman in the state of Tennessee to change her name to her husband's name. In my time, I originated the gift to the Frist, now they call it the Frist Art Museum, I think, but at the time it was the Frist Center for the Arts. Engraved in stone in the lobby, Mr. and Mrs. William F. Harnish. What? <laughs> <laughs> Nashville still sends its formal invitations from Mr. and Mrs. Man's name. Mm -hmm. Some of the most powerful women in Middle Tennessee allow themselves to be reduced to Mrs. His name on invitations to formal events. I, I don't get it. It's 2018, I don't get it. But there are still women for whom identifying with their male partner to the point where their own name doesn't appear is okay with them. So things are still changing. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. All right. Um, you've, you've talked, you might've talked about a few of these, but one question I have for you is, can you tell me about a life-changing moment that you've had on your journey? I guess the thing that has made the biggest change in my life is going from a person who did not know where the money would be coming from because a media career is an insecure career. I had at one time three full-time jobs. I slept three hours a night if I was lucky because I never knew when somebody would change owners and fire me or when the new boss would want something I couldn't produce or whatever, you know? And women getting older in television, they age in dog years. So <laughs> you need to get rid of these women. And plus they earn more so you can get a cheaper or younger one. So I, I was financially frightened most of my life. Uh, no one is secure. There is no one who is secure. The events of 2008, for example, should teach anyone that no one is secure. These days, if your president says something untoward about your business, it could collapse overnight. No one is secure. No one is secure. So given that, but I am more secure than I have ever been in my life, and the ability to not lie awake, fearful about money, is probably the biggest life-altering thing that has ever happened to me. And because I was freed of that fear, I learned that money and our attitudes toward it are made up. We made up money. Humans made up money. There are some good podcasts that tell you the history of how we made up money. People used to swap stones and shells and beads and things. We make up a medium of exchange. And 
our pieces of paper that we trade and call money don't even have anything behind them anymore. They used to at least represent gold or silver. Now, they're just pieces of paper representing the full faith and credit of the United States of America. <laughs> so we have beliefs in pieces of paper or numbers in a computer program. Where is the, you can't eat those things. You can't live in those things. If you're clever, you could stitch some of them together for covering, but it wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be really efficient. When something like a hurricane happens, when a natural disaster wipes out things, I'm thinking of Superstorm Sandy. You could have been the richest person in your neighborhood, but if you didn't have diapers for your kid, all your money, everything in a bank account was doing you no good whatsoever. So I learned by not having to worry about money where true wealth really lies. Mm. True wealth lies in your community. True wealth lies in your friendships. True wealth lies in your infrastructure and systems that exist to support you in your environment, in the assets of those you know and who will come to you. <laughs> if you need food, money means nothing. The, I mean, the actual money or the fact that you have some. If you need a helping hand to get from one place to another, if you need people to come for you in a boat, all the money that you have is not gonna help. You're gonna have to leave a lot of what your money bought you behind. Mm -hmm. You're always gonna have to leave it behind eventually. That's another thing. You, we not only make it up, we spend so much of our time chasing it, then we have to leave it. <laughs> so people's relationship with money is something that's really important to me because I have been so broke in my life that I rolled pennies to buy something to eat. Uh, and I have been rich enough to be able to give a multi-million dollar gift to a nonprofit. And I'm the same human. It's, it's just the dollar signs that have changed and with them, the awareness of how money rules us if we let it. Mm. So one of the things that you do, in addition to being a philanthropist and media mogul and all of these wonderful things, is you are also an investor. And we have a lot of business leaders, business owners who listen to the podcast. And I had a curiosity for you. Is there a common denominator in terms of the types of people that you like to invest in? Are there certain qualities or characteristics that when you see them in an entrepreneur or a business owner, you're like, yes, that is the type of person that I want to invest in? Or is it case by case and every single one is different? Everything is a fingerprint. Every business is a fingerprint. They're all individual and different. I love people who have an idea that resonates with me <laughs> because I don't, I don't think I should be investing either philanthropically or for profit in things I can't be so passionate about that I wouldn't join you in trying to find others to, to invest their money or to give up their time and resources mm -hmm. in other ways. I, I, I just 
feel like if I can't be your donor partner or your investor partner in a really passionate way, I'm not the right person for you. So that's the first thing I look for is can I get excited about what you're up to? I want you to be up to something meaningful also. Like there are many wonderful companies that do things that are great great to do and they have their audience, but but they don't have the purpose in life where they are not accomplishing the thing in life that that I would want to invest in. If you were making shoes, for example, I don't care about your cute high heels, but if you're making shoes that are really comfortable and look good and are susceptible, I might be interested in those shoes. See yeah. the difference? Yeah. yeah. Even though the others are probably cuter shoes. <laughs> so another question I had for you, you're also a certified coach. Mm -hmm. um, in your coaching with people, are there common things that are often holding people back are there things that you're often coaching against that you're just saying like, wow, I keep seeing this as a barrier for people time and time again, or again, like with investing, is it pretty much everyone is totally different? Everyone is totally different, exactly alike. <laughs> I, here is a common denominator that almost every coaching client brings. They bring somebody's voice in their head. I always like to make the joke because it's not my original. I don't know who thought it up. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. <laughs> <laughs> People hear their parents' voices in their heads or their grandparent or their first boss or that teacher they looked up to or their athletic coach. Somebody whose authority holds sway with them for whatever reason is in their head. They got laws from those people, or they got a map from those people. And whenever their own dreams, ambitions, or realities take them away from or put them in violation of those rules or contradicting my mother would, my father would, oh, well, if they heard it, they would. That holds more people than anything, is what would so-and-so think, or that would kill my fill in the blank. So I invite people to ask whether the authority they're listening to is one they truly trust. Like, how's that advice? Is they, have they ever been wrong? Have they ever, is there, would you be killing yourself in order to give life to their dream? Is that, would that make you feel good about, because some people would feel so bad about themselves to let their parents down that whatever they would go do, they'd be miserable. Mm. So their happiness is in doing duty. So that's where the individual fingerprint comes. But everybody alike, usually there's some voice saying, don't do that. Another thing is the fear of not. Whatever it is they want to do, the fear of that they fail, or they're not good enough, that they're not up to it, that they can't, whatever it is. Fear, 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 fear. And I invite people to do their worst case scenario. What's, what's the worst that could happen if that happened? What's the worst that could happen if that happened? And keep going until they get down to their broken homeless. Mm. Because that's what most of them fear, is that they're broken homeless. 
And I say, have you lost all your friends and family then by this point? Oh, no. They never one has felt that they would be abandoned and alone, just broken, ashamed. And I said, is there anybody in your circle that you think would take you in, give you a bed, feed you, and not make you feel terrible about that? There's always at least one. And usually people who are in a position to be receiving my coaching have a huge circle of people. And I ask them to literally map out, how long could you live without work? if you depended only on the kindness of people that you wouldn't feel bad taking it from. Most people can go at least a year who, who come to me and are in that position of fear. Most people can go at least a year feeling like I would be loved, I would be fed, I would be housed, I would be fine. Another thing that most coaching clients have in common is they have not truly thought through what they want. Mm. Joe Jackson had a song, you can't get what you want till you know what you want. Most people have not said definitively what their ideal life would look like and actually pictured it. If I got this job or if I establish this company or if I do this thing, what will life look like? And I ask them, do you have to have Thanksgiving off? <laughs> You're not going to be a television news anchor if you want your weekends off and your holidays off, because news happens. <laughs> and people used to say, I want that job you have. Really, do you? Let me tell you about that job. <laughs> and when you tell somebody the realities, it's not what it looks like. So what do you really want? What is the outcome you are really hoping for? Be truthful with yourself. A lot of people are too ashamed and to admit this is the ambition I have. Because what would people think if I thought if they thought I thought that much of myself? Well, if you do, go ahead, <laughs> get out there, and don't stop yourself from that. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. All right. I actually have to read this one, and I'm hoping that you did say this, but I found this on the interwebs. So you said the following, I work every day to apply my money and my moxie to the biggest problem in the world, untapped capacity. That was at the very beginning. That was 20 years ago. And I believe it's still true today. I'm just working on different untapped capacities. Mm, can you talk to me a little bit about that? When I first started our budget for the year, seemed huge to me. It was about as much as I made full-time working, that I was going to be able to distribute that much philanthropically, just blew my mind. <laughs> and today we give grants like that all the time. You know, that, that, is a, that is a grant size now, what our budget used to be. And I'm grateful for that. But back in those days, untapped capacity would have been in a much smaller program, like uh, buying computers for a social service agency, serving refugees so that they could practice their English and pay for the childcare for these families, maybe 15 people, that kind of thing. Where the, the untapped capacity of the refugee whose life will be 
ever so much more contributory to their new community if they have facility in English and if their kids are not untended while they're learning. <laughs> so that kind of thing. Today, the untapped capacity I'm looking for is how do we make the best use of all the people we are not electing to office, all the people we are not hiring in leadership positions? How is it that we don't have more than four women leading the biggest companies in the world? How is it that we still don't have parity in our elected officials? And the majority of everyone who gets elected to everything are still white. And the majority of everyone who gets elected to everything are still male. And there are so many underrepresented voices in the storytelling. I work to increase the capacity of storytellers who are people of color and who are women or identify as women with Sundance. When I was contributing to TED, I increased their capacity to invite people who weren't white men <laughs> by helping to create the TED Fellows Program as one of the founding funders and creating a coaching program for them so that even these world-class achieving polymaths could maximize their gifts by having personalized coaching attention to help them overcome their barriers. Mm -hmm. So moving from helping a few people in smaller programs to tap their untapped capacity to some of the biggest and best known organizations in the world helping to expand those voices who get to count. Mm -hmm. So for you, what is one of the best pieces of leadership advice that you've ever gotten? Whoever it is that said, there go my people, I must follow them because I am their leader. <laughs> I grew up at a time when, again, white men were in charge and the concept of a leader was one powerful man in control. And the concept was called command and control. And as leadership became more distributed and more women and other genders got into leadership, it became more collaborative. But I grew up in the great man era and my original leadership was, I'm in charge here. This is, I set the agenda, we do what I say, it's my business, it's our family money. I realized at some point along the way that if your idea doesn't have friends who are passionate about it as much as you are, so that if you got hit by the proverbial bus that your idea would live, you don't have a very good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I only want to invest in ideas that have friends <laughs> and I want to know what my people want because that's how I will lead them. Three more questions. From your entire career, from everything that you can pull from, what are two to three top pieces of advice that you have for business leaders? It's lonely at the top because there are so few people up there. <laughs> <laughs> so find each other, get in networks and help each other 
remake work <laughs> so that it's not so lonely for anyone and everyone. Yeah, so the first thing is if you're a leader, find the other leaders, learn from them, work with them. Second, stretch your comfort zone constantly. The world changes so fast. You have to learn a new vocabulary every 15 minutes, it seems. But you have to, so you must. And it doesn't do you any good to say, oh, I don't know how to blank. That's for you kids. Do not allow yourself to be outmoded in any way. Be on the bleeding edge everywhere you can. And that means stretching your comfort zone. For me, that's meant taking some improv classes. Our foundation started an improv leadership training program for girls uh, 8 to 13 years old, and it involves uh, boundary-breaking <laughs> improv. And, and I'm not going to ask kids to do anything I'm not going to do myself. So I have taken a, a number of improv classes and have done a number of goofy things in public. I would never do <laughs> before I did this sort of thing. And I, I feel like a better leader for learning new things and stretching who I used to be. And let's see, for a third thing, be real about your money story. Money runs a lot of people subconsciously. Their, their attitudes about it, how they feel about themselves in relation to it, what they learn from their parents about it, what the society teaches them about it. Let's be real about how people get money, where money goes, and what is a practical way to build a financial life that gives one comfort and does not keep one worried or doing things that don't bring joy to life because this is the only life you've got. Now is the only time you have. If you are working at something you hate to get money for a time in the future, way in the future, when you can do something you love, that is not a life well spent. Find time today to have joy, no matter what the money situation is, and build a life that you like now. That's the only one you have. All right, so throughout your story, there's been this theme of kind of barrier breaker pioneer uh, being in a marginalized community and doing things that you weren't supposed to do. And your generation got women a seat at the table, like hands down, no questions asked. It's allowed me the privilege of being able to sit here and ask you the question, how did you deal with that sexual harassment in the workplace? I can't even imagine it. Not to say that sexual harassment in the workplace is not happening right now, but to the levels and the extremes that you're talking about, that that is blowing my generation's mind. And we're still in a society where women are still having a hard time getting to the upper echelons, where marginalized communities are, people with disabilities are. What is your advice for people who feel as though that thing that they want, that role that they want, that career that they want, that they can't have it for some reason? What do you say to them? What's the next logical step? There's always a next logical step and keep using your brainstorming ideas. You are not even close to the number of ideas you can have. So every day, 
give you, set yourself a little timer, five minutes, and write down as many ideas as far-fetched as you can think of, people you want to meet, or uh, uh, something you might learn, or a place you might go, or any ideas that will help get you one more tiny step closer to that thing. And I promise you, if you discipline yourself to put your mind to work and you get over your fear of picking up the phone or typing that note and contacting the people who can help you get there, I promise you, you will get closer than if you're just sitting there going, I can't. Mm, I, I have a lot of young entrepreneurs who ask me, like, how did you start a magazine? How did you do this? And I was pretty young when I did it. And I always say it was one step at a time. It was literally coming up with the name, writing the first email for the first person we wanted on the cover. Like, I mean, we, it was just one step at a time. And it seems so simple. And it also feels so hard to so many people. But that's the essence of a good coach, too. A good coach will help you identify your hoped-for outcome. What is it we're working for here? <laughs> what is it you really want to achieve? It's usually not as simple as that promotion or create that company. It's build a life of joy every day. How do you build all the environments of your life to support your joy in every moment of every day as much as possible. I was about to go to our last question, but I have to ask you, <laughs> for you, how do you build a life of joy for yourself every day? What does that look like? Gratitude and awareness. Like if you just sat right now while you're listening and started thinking just about your physical body, no matter what shape it's in, all the things that work, <laughs> that other people right now are in misery because it's not working. If you can hear us, that's something that's working on you, that's not working for everybody. If you can see us, if you've got the means to uh, access a podcast, you've got something going for you. If, you're, if all your fingers and toes are there and if they move, if you've got four limbs and they move, if you can eat and swallow, you know what I mean? It's like, it's so arrogant not to find the joy because you've, we've all, we've all been given so much. And that is not to say that there is not suffering and that there is not misery, but there are examples where one can change one's mind. And if one is in a situation where one's mind cannot be changed, find allies, find support, find help. I'm also a trained crisis counselor on the crisis text line. And of course you are. <laughs> anyone, anywhere, anytime can text 741-741 and find someone on the other end who is willing to work through whatever is causing the crisis. All right, last question. What is giving you hope right now for the future? The relay race. The relay race always gives me hope for the future. I know that the relay race for women to have a vote started long before I got a chance to go and cast my ballot. And there were women who were in that race, who were in that fight, literally in a fight in some cases, to get those rights for me. And I am in that relay race to make sure that the next people have 
not just those rights, but the next rights. And none of us are going to live to see the end of this race, we hope. <laughs> we, we hope that, that the human race and that the planet survives, but we're all part of that endless chain of passing on our values and our hopes and our ambitions for the world in which all are treated with dignity and which all can be supported in their quest for the maximization of what they've been given to deal with in their earthly circumstances. I really believe there is a, an opportunity for the world that works for everybody, but it's a race I'm not gonna see the end of. So I'm doing my part and your work gives me hope. I'm handing the baton to you. Carry it on, give it to the next. Oh, that was my favorite answer we've ever had. <laughs> um, thank you. Just thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you've done. I, when I, when I, when I say that you, you and your generation literally got us a seat at the table, I, I mean it. Um, and it's, it's like it just overwhelms me the things that you have had to go through in your career to get to where you are and where you are now. And I'm just so grateful that you did what you did, so that we can now take the baton and keep running, so that we can build a more beautiful world for our children. I just am honored to be with you. And that's how I feel about every human who was in that race and handed the baton to get it to me. A huge thanks this week goes out to Ruth Ann Harnish and the whole team over at the Harnish Foundation. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media production. 